Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. This is gonna be a tour de force. I'm bringing behind the microphone a friend of mine, Irene Yanku from Canada. You wonder why I say wherever you are in the world and whatever time it is in the introduction? Well, now we're going global. That's right, no longer the continental United States. We're going far north of the border to Toronto. Irene's got an unbelievable story. She's a good friend of ours, and you're gonna love this episode. So get your pad and pen ready. You know it'll be a note-taking episode and brew another wonderful cup of that Mila coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and as I teased in the introduction, I'm joined behind the microphones by another professional podcaster, Irene Yanku from Toronto, Canada way over the border, right? (laughs) (laughs) She is a restorative dental hygienist uh, and owns her own dental practice called Tooth Life Studio based in Toronto. She's a theoretical and clinical educator at Oxford College, international speaker. I'm not even an international speaker and a key opinion leader, as well as a peer and quality assurance mentor contracted by the College of Dental Hygienists of Ontario. Irene, Welcome to the Group Practice Hi. Accelerator podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Your microphone sounds better than microphone, my microphone. So there's nothing like showing up the host with more technology. You know, this is I mean, a, my camera was on too when you made me turn it off. So, well, I, you I know, think I, you're just having uh, you're having a insufficiency kind of in your in your tech over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, among other things, I don't want to tell the audience, but maybe I failed I to brush my to teeth this morning. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. We're going to right, focus. All right. We both need a little bit of focus here for this episode. Yeah, this is going to be fun because because that's, that's I, the problem when you interview a friend, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You never really know where it's going to go. So I've had mm-hmm. the the opportunity to to hear you speak on a couple of occasions, and it, it, your your presentations are humorous, wonderful, um, very engaging, and entertaining. But for for our audience who may never have met you, heard you speak, um, or or heard you on another podcast, why don't we start just by giving a little bit of your background, how you got to start as a as a dental hygienist. Tell a little bit of your story for the audience. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how far back are we going? Are we going to birth? I mean, I, I was born in, <laughs> I was born in uh, Romania, communist country. Parents were refugees, moved to Canada. Um, didn't know I wanted to get into dentistry at all until you know I met a boy. And usually all good stories start with a love story and then they end with not a love story. Um, and, and he ended up uh, being a dentist and I became a dental hygienist. And unfortunately, we parted ways, but I loved the profession so much that I stuck with it. So 17 years later, you know, there's a lot of fast forwarding that's done, but I started working in a regular practice as, a, as an everyday dental hygienist, Monday to Friday, grinding it out. And for the first seven years, I 
you know, enjoyed what I did, but I didn't have that ownership mentality. I didn't have the ownership practice and in the practices that I worked in, I kind of clocked in and clocked out. And uh, with that, I wasn't making as much money as I had thought I should or wanted to. And ultimately I started adding the designations. I, you know, went back to school, uh, got the credentials in order to be able to teach. I became an oral myofunctional therapist. Then I became a restorative dental hygienist. Um, and then I decided to open up my own dental practice, front facing to the public, operating just like a dental practice, but signs the, you know, the hygienist is the one signing the checks. Different dynamic, different business model, which I'm sure we'll get into. I'm still icing the uh the bruises from my uh financial interrogation with Mark Costas. Um, and I'm sure I'll get some of that from you too. But it's kind of the the behind the scenes of where where I where I started and Ultimately, that's kind of what led me to the podium, uh, sharing my story with other clinicians, business owners, entrepreneurs. Um, you know, there's some similarities to a dental hygienist owning a practice to the same as a dentist owning a practice, and that's that we don't get much training of it in school. And that's where we are today. Navigating my COVID baby, my COVID dental practice baby, three years in, and figuring out all of these intricacies and sophisticated business ownership and, and what it's like to be a practice owner and boss for the first time. Challenges abound, right? And I, yeah. I, it's, what I love about your story is um, that you are a clinician, you're an entrepreneur, you're very forward thinking and, and innovative. Um, you own a, a retail space of it as well. Mm-hmm. Tell uh, the audience a little bit about that story of the um, hmm. uh, you know, building out the practice, COVID hitting, um, yeah. crying on the stairs. I don't want to fill it all in, but I remember <laughs> yeah, it. It was that vivid, do. right? Yeah, wow. yeah, go for it. Oh, usually I deliver a presentation and no one remembers anything after, but this this one seemed to have hit home a little bit on that stage. So, um, okay, rewind to Irene wanting to open her own practice. Now, all of us, when we decide to open practice, you, you, you find someone that can perhaps write a business plan for you because you have no idea how to do that. They didn't teach you that in school. Uh, or you deep dive into Google or take an online course or fill in the boxes of an Excel spreadsheet that you downloaded off of a paid site and you take it to the bank. And most of the time, it's the same you know, uh, division of the bank, the healthcare division, where doctors and physicians and chiropractors, anyone with a license of some kind goes to ask for a loan. And, and if you're a dentist or a physician, usually they sign that check over pretty quickly, regardless of what your debt is. Now, I didn't have any debt, which was interesting. And I asked for half a million bucks for a build out. I had my own personal injection that I was going to throw in and the big fail stamp and decline stamp hit my business plan because the numbers didn't match up because of course I'm not the main provider. I'm a hygienist. So I'm making a lot less, maybe 30 to 40% less of what a dentist would be making um, in the same kind of build out. So I had to recreate and rethink this entire model and how am I going to get more of my own personal injection into this as, as a safety net for the bank to say, okay, we'll lend you the rest. So I, I had a retail store at the time. I was the VP of a Canadian non-for-profit and one of my jobs was to fundraise and I hated asking people for money. So I created an online store and sold some paraphernalia, as some people call it, accessories and things, dental-inspired accessories. That's where the name Tooth Life came from. We, you know, watches and necklaces and jewelry and a very feel-good kind of kind of feeling for dental practices. And employers like to buy that stuff for their team members. It kind of builds morale and culture. So at this point, you know, people were starting to wear scrub caps again. And I thought, okay, well, let's design some scrub caps and sell them. And I worked backwards. How many scrub caps do I have to sell to save $150,000? 
And I did the math and I did the spreadsheet and I found a supplier in China and I had it all produced. And in the end, that's how I made the remainder of the money that I needed to fundraise for myself in order to build my practice. So I used my retail store as uh, as the funnel of 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 resources in order to get the bank to accept my my business plan. So I had to be resourceful because as a dental hygienist, you know, some don't make 100 grand in a year and I at this point was working part-time in order to try and get my business plan going and then all of the the behind the scenes work that comes with opening a practice for the first time. Learn a lot of learning, learning about how to be a good employer, how to be a good boss and and what those kind of systems need to look like and putting those systems together. So that's the the story that I shared. Um, I got the approval from the bank in order to to begin. And at this point, you know, COVID was something that was happening in in a very far away land, but not here in, in Canada. So I started to feel those uh, those pressures and stressors quite early as things weren't arriving and there were delays and there were shortages and in um, construction materials and little things like you know the microchips of my dental operatories and chairs and things that weren't arriving. So I started to feel those effects of COVID happening quite sooner than kind of the rest of the world did in this process. Um, does that answer your question? I feel like I kind of went on a of a, a rabbit. No, it's there a, of, it's it's great it's just, because it's trying to paraphrase it all into three years into one. But that, <laughs> you know that that was the the resourcefulness. I think you were asking, but like, how did I use my retail line? Um, yeah, to, you know, it's we don't we don't get to hear too many story. We we don't get the nitty gritty around yeah. bootstrap financing yeah. very often. That that's really where I was going with it because yeah. you know it's just kind of a a fait accompli. It's like, well, I go like to your point, you know, if you have a professional designation, you go to a bank and they, they fall over themselves to give you money. And, yeah. and it's usually not that easy, even no. for uh, licensed professionals. But in your context, it was also the, okay, how do I build up a little bit of a war chest of cash to make my dream happen? And it's... Um, I had, and uh, I had more than most. I mean, I had about 90,000 saved. I had a bunch of investments and things that I didn't want to pull out. You know, I wanted to be safe with where I pull and put my money. But I had a liquid cash of about 90K and it still wasn't enough. And I asked the bank person or the the associate that I was working with, like, I don't quite understand, like, how, how are, you know, my dent- dentist friends getting free money, basically, and mine is so expensive. And it was because of that, you know, designation that I was a, a dental hygienist. I wasn't even a restorative dental hygienist at the time. And the numbers just didn't match up. And it was nothing to do with me personally. It was the analyst on the other end that were plugging in the numbers and the cannot compute error code comes back. And <laughs> and it just, you know, a bunch of ones and zeros tell tell them that I'm not the right person to, to be lending their money to. So, I, you know, I bank hopped. I went from one to the next and I ended up getting a loan with a bank that I don't even bank with all because I had a very savvy person that looked at my application and Googled me. And understood that, okay, well, this girl is a little bit different. She's doing things a little bit differently. I had a presence on you know, a Google search with my name and they understood that, okay, now we understand where the chair rental agreement is going to come in from this section of the, the business plan. Now we understand where the office rental is going to come from and how social media is playing a part because all of these little, you know, side revenue streams in my one practice made sense to this person just by doing a quick Google search. An analyst isn't going to Google you. They're just going to plop all of your information into their DOS system and it's going to come up with a, a green check mark or or a red X. So that that was the struggle of trying to do things a little differently and think outside the box. 
Excellent. We we talk about the the banking relationship um, frequently on this podcast, and usually um, have the uh, when we talk about banking, we talk about it from a uh, you know an institutional relationship type of a, a scenario where the 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 lender. Um, agrees to fund the the forward-looking needs of the business to facilitate growth strategy. But in your context, that relationship is obviously equally important because it's a person-to-person connection, mm-hmm. not just a spreadsheet to analyst type of a, a connection that that got the deal done uh, yeah. um, initially, which is great. Well, I think um, in most cases, dental practices are kind of cookie cutter, right? Copy and yeah. paste, copy and paste. Um, and for a dental hygienist to open a practice, and you know, some of you may be thinking, well, I don't even know if that's a thing in my state or in my province. I guess I'm not sure how many Canadians you have listening to this, but there are some states in the United States that like California, for example, and Colorado that allow dental hygienists to open their own practices. Now, the way that that practice looks might be different. It may be a brick and mortar. It may be a mobile practice. They may have contracts with big companies where they go into their boardrooms and set up in a boardroom and clean all of the lawyers' teeth over their lunch breaks. Uh, those models look very different and it's not new. I mean, in in the province of Ontario, hygienists have been able to open practices longer than before I've been practicing. So it's over 17 years. So it's not a new model. It's just, I'm kind of the loudest, I guess, at this point. And I've had, I've had the most struggles because of the way that I've decided to go about it, uh, opening a front facing dental practice without, you know, dental hygiene posted on the windows. And, and there are dental hygiene clinics in and around my neighborhood that don't have dental services. They rely on a referral out kind of model and hope that the referral comes back in and doesn't stick with the practice that they go to for their restorative work. So there are a few other clinicians that I know that kind of operate that I do the way that I do. Um, and some of them, you know, had money or came from families with money or their parents were dentists and it was a, an easier transition. I know one who their family owns the business at the building that they're in. So it was kind of an easy, here's a space you, you do your thing. Um, but I decided to do a build out with Patterson. And I think we shared, I shared the story with you. I decided to go from, you know, getting a quote from Sinclair to Henry Schein to ultimately leading with Patterson. And and that was the question that I had is, how are you going to help me do this? Because this is very unique. I want all new equipment. I want all new everything. It's going to be very expensive and I'm going to need your help because I'm not a dentist. Um, and uh, they did a really good job of, of facilitating the uh, the build out and helping me as much as I could with financing of, of equipment, large and small um, so yeah, I think you know, this is kind of the future of what's happening in in our climate, and you see it all the time as as the DSO guy, private equity owning practices. You don't have to necessarily have a designation or even practice to to be a business owner. Yeah, I, you know, um, it is an interesting wrinkle, and I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit deeper into the the challenges around business ownership, but specifically a little bit on the. Uh, for lack of a better term, competitive strategy standpoint, you know, healthcare services have uh, historically or traditionally been a word of mouth type of referral, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. industry, if you will. You know, I, I need to find a pediatrician for uh, my daughter. You know, you ask six friends, well, who do you see? You know, that that type of a thing. And dentistry is not altogether different from that. What we're seeing with 
the the mobility of society um, and the the proliferation of larger groups certainly is more of a direct to consumer type of a marketing model. And now there's uh, there are a number of marketing agencies that that focus their uh, efforts on a scalable side of marketing strategy for new patient adoption. And mm-hmm. you know yours is akin to um, uh, you know a, a a referral or a a specialty type of a, a a business where to your point you know if you refer a, a patient to a general dentist you run the risk of that patient not coming back um for hygiene services so you have to be dependent uh on marketing to a great degree i wonder if you couldn't maybe spend just a little bit of time talking about marketing yeah. the way you do what you do you're True. very much a genius at it and i think we can all learn from it well, then that was that was business plan 1.0. I mean, 1.0 business plan was Irene standalone clinic, maybe two operatories, strictly doing dental hygiene services and building really strong referrals where I, you know, am exceptional at the dental hygiene portion of it and then refer out for restorative. So the first time I got declined on my business plan was that model, was the model of me sending patients away and hoping that they come back. So we went back to the drawing board and we wrote we wrote the entire business model. We went from two operatories to plumbed and ready for four. We went from hygiene services only to immediately having a dentist on site and keeping those services in. So I changed my mind quite quickly because I realized I can't have all of the things that I want. I can't have all of the brand new sparkly equipment, uh, finance it all, and just the per hour um, revenue w- wasn't going to be able to pay for what that overhead was going to look like. So I, I now learned you know, over time why some independent dental hygiene practices are not operating with a dentist and why their overhead is the way that it is, is because they're trying to you know, keep their costs, costs down and cut, cut them as much as they can in order to keep that business model alive. So on the marketing side, I mean, unfortunately, when we opened, COVID was very much a thing, um, 1.0 version of COVID. And we didn't do a ton of marketing. We uh, really leaned into our community. So my practice is in what we call the beaches of Toronto, kind of a corner of a busy intersection, had some nice you know, uh, graphics that were up, not the traditional elderly man holding an apple, demonstrating how good the adhesion is on his, den- on his dentures, uh, minimalistic kind of design. And the office is kind of industrial looking, open ceilings, um, you know, very, very uh, open and airy, lots of windows kind of feel. So that was the way that we decided to market by just hitting the pavement and meeting all of the business owners in the neighborhood. And the business owners became my very first few patients. Didn't have a large referral when I left my previous practice. You know, I had a list of maybe 20 patients that were going to come with me, but I wasn't able to solicit anyone there to leave. So I made friends. I made friends in the neighborhood. We did a couple of mailers. Those didn't give us a return like we expected. But what did was Instagram, social media and Instagram. I posted the entire build out on social media. I did daily updates of what was happening. And my biggest source of referral, aside from people in the community kind of walking by during COVID, everyone wanted to stay local to where they live. Um, We're no longer going into downtown Toronto. We're working in the large office buildings. They were all working from home. So they wanted a walkable place to get their teeth cleaned and filled and whatever they had to do um, with social media. Uh, I get a lot of referrals from other dental hygienists who either admire what I've done or 
you know, we've got some really great pieces of technology that we use that not a lot of other offices are able to provide for their team members. So that's that's what we did. And it didn't, you know, pay per click. I didn't do any Google ads. And we still average between 30 to 40 new patients a month. Now during the beginning of the buildup, we got sometimes 60 to 80 new patients a month. So we're getting a great source of referral from internal referrals, asking for reviews and uh, from other dental professionals. Fantastic. I mean, uh, building a tribe, you know, building yeah. a following, building an audience, it's so hard to do. And you were, you were really good at it. And when we, uh, when we conclude or when we publish this um, uh, podcast, we'll link to all your social media handles and everything like that. So our audience can, you know, uh, look at some of what you do and the way that you do it and maybe glean some um, opportunities where they can do things better from a, a marketing standpoint, because uh, that, it's a, Sure. I think yeah. marketing agencies are great, but it's very cookie cutter and very templated in many instances, unless you get someone that really understands the intricacies of dentistry. So the goal is we have to describe to patients what we're able to do, what types of treatments we're able to provide, demonstrate them, not make them all gross and gory, um, and and then get them to buy in. Basically, everyone wants to sell something, but nobody wants to be sold. So what, what we do is we do the behind the scenes of, of our day and also of the procedures that we do, the why behind each of the procedures. And then patients come in asking for them by name, not because you're doing a $500 off Invisalign promo and there's only 12 spots left. I mean, we've all seen those going through the sponsored ads, but because we're describing what the problems are and the consequences and then saving the solutions till the very end so that the patients already made their decision that I have this problem and I see these consequences. So now I'm going to go to Tooth Life Studio for the solution. So thinking of it from the perspective of teaching as opposed from the perspective of selling, and maybe that's the teacher in me, um, bringing that forward because as soon as you make someone understand better why they need to do something, they're more inclined to make the decision to actually do the treatment. Yeah. Very, all very well said. And I, I think that, you know, in a, if, uh, I hate to use this word, typical general dentistry practice, uh, group dental practice. I mean, the hygiene department, generally speaking, has a lot of untapped potential, be it through efficiencies, retention, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think that Yours being a business that is exclusively that should give a lot of our audience a, a different perspective on, um, you know, the ways to look at their hygiene department uh, from an untapped potential standpoint. Let's take a second and have you dig into maybe some trends in dentistry and hygiene specifically, kind of building off yeah. of that thought. What what are you seeing both from an educator and a business owner standpoint? Hmm, yeah, great question. Two things. So expanded functions, dental hygienists, similar to F does in the United States are becoming more popular, more widely accepted, and it is a great opportunity for increased revenue. So I am a restorative dental hygienist, which means I do general dental hygiene services, but I also do restorative services similar to an EFTA. So doc will prep a tooth and then I take the tooth from prep all the way to its final restoration, whether that be a direct or an indirect restoration, a filling or a crown or whatever that might be. So that frees up 
space on the dock side to do more of the things that are more valuable and putting some of the least valuable, but still more valuable than what a regular hour of dental hygiene will be in my chair. So we've kind of divided, I've got sadly the Irene only patients, you know, the ones that only want to see me because they've been seeing me for a long time um, on a couple of days a week. And then we reserve another day for some of these more productive days. That includes the restorative days, the myofunctional days and ortho. Um, so that those are some trends that are coming up now, more expanded functions, dental hygiene. Now you talked about systemization and yes, I do a lot of dental hygiene and our practice is very perio-focused. We also do restorative, but what we have done is we've very much systemized across all three hygienists that work in the practice, how we communicate with the patient and how we communicate with the dentist during that specific exam or during the recall exam. So what I mean by this is the way we seat the patient, the way we take their blood pressure, the way we review medical history, although we do it with our own little quirks and, and facets, we, we do it basically the same way. Um, when we take radiographs, how we evaluate those radiographs, what we look for. And there's one thing that has increased production significantly, I'd say 20 to 30% over the last 12 months that we do is we use disclosing agent on every patient before we clean their teeth. So what that does using an intraoral camera, it allows me as a hygienist to take a sweep around the mouth of my camera and take photos of all of the restorative work that's in the mouth. Now, a generally healthy restoration, those that are listening will know what one looks like, shouldn't have a ton of pink and purple dye pooling and in certain areas where the margins of those restorations are. So we snap a photo of them and we think about what's the longevity of this restoration. How long has it been in there? And statistically speaking, how often should it be replaced? Now there's no such thing as a restoration that's going to last a lifetime. And if someone tells you that they've been lying to you, but most of the time, you know, between five to seven years, we see some failures in these restorations. So if a patient's coming to see us, they've been seeing us for three years and they went to a different practice before, it means that that restoration is at least three to four years old. And if they say, well, I've had this for my whole life, then you know it's probably time to have it replaced. And preventative dentistry these days, especially in this younger, you know, millennial demographic, which is what my patient load is. Most of my patients are between 28, 29, and 44, I'd say. So I, I'm 38. I'd consider myself an elder millennial. I've got some of those restorations that were done when I was a teenager that need to be replaced now. So that's one thing that I'd say we've calibrated is the way that we communicate and what we're looking for, which as a restorative hygienist, I understand. What I can say is that most hygienists that graduate without any restorative expanded functions don't understand the intricacies of what a prepped tooth looks like. They don't understand what a margin looks like. They don't know what a proximal box is. They don't know what an axial wall is. They don't know what a cavo surface is. So if there's an opportunity to do a little team huddle and calibration of like, okay, this is what it looks like. These are all of the steps of a preparation. These are the areas that are most likely to fail. These are the areas that we should be assessing at every dental hygiene visit. So having that conversation with the other two hygienists, one who's a new grad and one who's been working with me for about two years now, um, they were, you know, kind of light bulb moment too, when they, they realized that this is some, some gap in knowledge that was just not part of curriculum. So that's helped us, um, elevate our communication and calibrate across all of the clinicians in the practice, including the dentist, because now she knows all of the things that we look for. Two or to force of an answer on that. And I, I, I would tell you that, um, 
you know, not, not coming from a clinical uh, professional background the way that um, I do, uh, I equate this to, this is going to come across the wrong way, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to walk the plank and still Just say do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when we talk about, you know, growing revenue in a business and we, um, you know, are, are searching for ways to do that. And, and all too often we're, we're looking for the equivalent of the new patient or in a sales parlance, you, you're looking for um, a, a new prospect, a new customer, right? And, and sometimes, you know, when you think about your core, we're always trying to impress upon people the urgency to maximize the potential in the core business, meaning mm-hmm. don't take on more debt to buy another location or even potentially to expand the current facility. Focus on really maximizing the um, uh, the incremental yeah. revenue possibilities in the core business, because there's usually a lot of untapped potential in that. And and if you think about the old sales adage um, of your your best pro your best prospect is your current customer, it really kind of plays to that same train of thought in a different way from what you're talking about. I'm not I'm not advocating, nor would I ever over diagnosing something or selling treatment that's not warranted. No, of but not. you know, th- there is a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of opportunities and conditions that that would benefit the patient um, to proactively address them before they become a, a failure, uh, and and that is something that's probably left walking in and out the door without that type of coordination and really kind of team approach to things that you shared. And I think that's um, that's a lot of a lot of genius behind that, honestly. So. Very, I mean, you're very, very you're answer. not you're not wrong, and we're limited for space. I mean, we during COVID we decided that fourth operatory was going to be where our workstations were because it was mandatory for us to have a fallow time between patients. So I was off the top losing twenty minutes on each patient appointment because the room had to sit, aerosols had to rest before we were able to go in and clean. So if we're seeing, you know, we have an eight hour day and 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 you break that up and into patient load, we're, we were losing two patients per day and just mm. time. So we needed to build our efficiencies and we needed to, you know, put our binoculars on and not to overdiagnose, but to future plan. And it could be something that we're keeping an eye on. We really adapted to avoiding treatment plans and more prevention plans as the verbiage and understanding what science and research is telling us. And there are, you know, publications that are out there, textbooks that we've all learned from that have great resources that tell you based on statistics and based on age and based on findings, what's the likelihood of this item to fail and in which way will it fail? A restoration that's been replaced two or three times, how many times do you have to reprep that tooth? How many, you know, microns of enamel are you losing? And ultimately it's going to lead to a different type of restoration. So when do you skip the middleman and go to the more conservative approach, which to some patients might seem like a radical approach, but in our minds, it's the most preventative approach. So we we really sat down and looked at that. We used um, Spear online education as a calibration through all of our team members. I pay, I don't know, and this was a, by advice from someone from DSI to uh, get a membership and put all my team members on it and watch videos, assign them and have a study club. So we have a monthly study club in the office and we discuss the videos that we watched and what we learned and what we want to kind of incorporate into our practice. Um, So that, you know, that was 
relatively cheap. And I consider $300 a month in CE for my entire team to be a very cheap um, and very reasonable price for, for high level education from some of the best speakers known to dentistry. Um, so, you know, it's, it's finding those efficiencies. You can't get more patients in your operatories unless you become better at doing those restorative works and understanding the materials that you're using. So going from incremental fillings to using different types of bulk fills, we upgraded our curing lights, you know, you shave off 20 seconds off of everything. And those 20 seconds over the course of a month adds up when you're seeing hundred patients. So it's those very small, you know, the, we've all read the and one percent per day um, it makes you three hundred and sixty-five percent better at the end of the year. It's that that same mentality with our with our individual very small procedures that we do in every dental procedure with the patient. Yeah, very very well said. And and I think um, you know at three hundred bucks a month, it it doesn't take much for that to be ROI positive. That's for sure. Yeah. So kudos to you for reinvesting in your team and and ultimately your business too. Let let's uh, pivot for a second. Talk uh, a little bit about hygienist hygiene recruiting. You know, there's a, a shortage uh, in the yeah. United States, and I would think the same in in Canada as well. But um, this is probably if not the number one topic that I see on a lot of message boards and social media, it's got to be in the top three. What What's your look at, you know, the whole how to recruit better value proposition, you know, how to how to address some of these issues? Great question. You're right. Here in Canada, just like in the United States, recruitment, hiring and just the acquisition of team members is is hard. And we see a lot of interesting things, signing bonuses and the fluffy perks and all of the lovely things that are promised in a job ad, but then you, you head to the office and it's you know quite the opposite of what you see, the promise of instruments and um, technology or you know an office that's just not as up to date as, as you would hope. So what I can say is that I haven't had any issues with hiring hygienists. And the reason for that is because I am a hygienist and I know all of the things that I would want. So I've incorporated those into my practice. Another great thing that I've done is I pay my hygienists a percentage of everything that they produce in the operatory, excluding examinations, which means I pay them a percentage of the radiographs that they take. I can share a funny story with you. And the last practice that I worked in um, it was big, big practice. Four associates, principal dentists who didn't do any of her own restorative. She had six restorative dental hygienists that filled all of the teeth that she prepped in multiple floors of a big practice. And myself and two other hygienists that were general hygienists doing all of the hygiene, you know, perio maintenance. She was always running behind. So what was the first thing that we omitted if we were running behind was you know, the exam and the x-rays and, oh, well, we'll do this next time. We'll do this next time. Well, when you do that next time over and over and over again among multiple clinicians, um, there's a lot of profitability that's lost in that time. So when I was putting together my contracts for my current clinicians, I thought, okay, well, if you do the work, you deserve to be paid for it regardless of what it is. So if you're taking radiographs, that takes time out of your schedule, that takes time out of billable dental hygiene time. So we, I gave her an option. Would you like to make an hourly rate? This is the hourly rate, which was at the time competitive. You can make a base rate plus uh, a commission if that's something that's more appealing. The base rate was a little bit lower and the commission rate was a little bit lower. Or you can take a risk and you can make, uh, you know, I think she she makes 35 to 40% of her billings. Um, 
that's the risk. So she chose the percentage risk. And some days she's making $70, $80 an hour. And I'm happy to pay that because I know that the production is in par with what a clinician should be making. And it also gives her this ownership mentality that you know, the treatment that I do is valuable and the the things that I recommend are important. And I'm also going to make an extra few, few bucks here. So the challenges for recruitment also end up being what is actually implemented and what's promised. So I give them a budget every month. This is your budget of what you can order for your uh, equipment. You can bank it if you want to spend some on something that's a little bit more expensive. Um, so they never complain to me that they don't have instruments because they've got the budget to do what they want with it. Same thing with CE. If you want to go to a course, give me in writing what this is going to look like for me. How is this going to be ROI positive on the practice? What are you going to implement? And I'd be happy to pay it. So I think just thinking of it from a reasonable standpoint, investing in your team is always going to be a positive ROI on the culture side. But how is that going to implement what they're able to do in the chair as well. So most of the offices that I see that are struggling to find team members, there's either an issue with the culture or with the promise, the promise of time off or the promise of what their hourly rate are going to be, what the compensation is, and really listening to what these clinicians want. Are they struggling for time? Are they doing 30-minute profies when it should be you know, SRP appointments? Um, are they working through their lunch break? Are they, you know, asked to stay late all the time? Or is there a balance issue between work and life? Um, those are some of the issues that we see. Temping agencies are doing really well right now because clinicians are able to say no to offices that they know aren't operating at a level that they should be. And they're also being paid a very high rate. So I think we're going to see a lot more part-time temporary clinicians that are going from office to office, earning more per hour and ultimately working less. And that's the goal, right? Work smarter, not harder. I think you and I can both agree to that. So um, if I were to do this all over again and not be a business owner, that's probably what I would do. I would be a full-time temp and I would work in the practices that I know are up to the level that I would want them to be. And I would work less less hours. I'd work maybe two 10-hour days a week and there's my 20 hours at my whatever, 60 bucks an hour, 65 per hour. And that would be more than if I worked in a full-time practice making 37 bucks an hour. Yeah. You know, listening to you kind of walk and talk through uh, the specificity that you did, and thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm reminded about uh, so many of the lessons that I learned in corporate America. And and one of those is that for for people who are uh, driven, motivated, really connected to the craft that they practice. Um, nothing diminishes their uh, enthusiasm for that faster than uh, a, a perceived loss of control. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we have employees, I'm not advocating that they that we let the inmates run the asylum by any stretch of the imagination, but it is amazing how far it'll go just to give somebody um, simple things within their control because it connotes that you trust them to make the right decision and they have a vested uh, interest in the outcome, be it CE or the instruments they're using or technology to to play off of what you're talking about before. And that's usually not too much to ask, you know? I mean, having a a budget or an allocation uh, and, and an expectation of the way they manage that and use it it's a simple thing. I mean, you're going to pay for it anyway, but just let right. them control it. Let them drive the bus and let them take a little bit of minimal ownership aspect of it. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. 
It takes a lot of uh, off your plate too. So if you allocate a certain percentage, I mean, that's what we do. We have a pie chart and we look at what the overhead is and you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a black belt with DSI at some point and and stay in that, you know, 40 to 45 percentile uh, overhead, which has been challenging over COVID. I mean, we're working on it. We're in the 50, low 50s. Um, but, you know, you, you look at that pie chart and you say, OK, so my sundries for the month or my ordering for the month is going to be four percent of our production from we, we go two months back um, and and. And so that what it what is that I don't know six thousand seven thousand eight thousand dollars for that month, um, we're going to take one percent of that and give it to hygiene, and then hygiene can do what they want with it. Maybe they order you know ten new instruments and get two free or whatever the promo is that's happening at the time. So if you look in in percentages like that, that makes life a little bit easier to understand. And then it's all based on numbers. So if you if hygiene wants more stuff, then hygiene needs to do more production in order to gain more money in that 1% or 2% that they're getting um, or bank it and save it for another month. And we try not to carry it over for more than a quarter because then it becomes expensive and that's what we're trying to avoid. So coming up with a system where it's, it's, you know, it's driven. It's driven by the clinicians that are working on those patients. I mean, interestingly enough, you said you know you don't want to let the inmates run the asylum. I've kind of left let the inmates run my asylum <laughs> since the beginning. So I I'm with you here today in my living room, and my practice is is operating, and I don't go to the office on Thursdays and Fridays. And um, you learn a lot of things when you when you do that. You learn where your weaknesses are. So I've obviously opened myself up to exposure. I've had a lot of concerns and issues and things not getting done or people leaving work early when they said they were going to be there. And you, you, you realize what you're opening yourself up to. And then you pivot and you, you fix for why. Um, uh, but uh, you have to unstick yourself from your business at some point. So I chose to do that early and see what happens. You unstick yourself from your business for a couple of days a week. And I did that when I went back to school. I went back to school and I was only able to be in the practice one to two days a week because I was in classes all day for restorative. So I think there's some value in it. If you can cut a day and see what happens, see see what ideas your team members come up with to solve for you not being there is really cool. They build their own systems. They have their own little ecosystem. Somehow things just happen happen and get done. And sure, there's mistakes you have to fix. And I'm, you know, pulling reports for the last 12 months, seeing if codes are built under the right provider and doing some double checks on my own. But um, it's very fascinating to watch people work when you're not there to micromanage them. Very, very well said and a, and a great point to end on. This has been a tour de force of a, a conversation. And frankly, it's one that um, I don't know that we've really ever had or dug into it this uh, at this level on the podcast. And Irene, I can't thank you enough for um, uh, for taking some time on. I'm not going to say on your day off, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, on, on a day like home this. day. Yes, there you go. There you go. We, as entrepreneurs, we're never off, right? No. <laughs> um, when but, does that happen? <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the day after never, as they say. Um, so uh, our audience is better for having you on the show. I can't thank you enough for it. I, I really, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it. I value your time. And, and um, this has been a really fun conversation that we're all better for. 
Thank you. And I'm a better human for knowing you too. I learned a lot from the episodes that we did together. So hopefully one day I can take you up on your offer to help me scale. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Would would love to see that. And um, it'll be great to, to connect with you at an upcoming conference, I'm, I'm sure too. And this won't be the last time we have you on the podcast. I think this is really um, an interesting conversation. And like I say, it's you know, and uh, I don't want to say an untapped me, but it's an area of potential in a lot of businesses uh, and we can all get better at that. So uh, once again, I appreciate you you making some time for me today. Thank you, Perrin. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Have a nice day. Yes. Um, Irene Ayanku from the great metropolitan area far outside of the continental United States of Toronto, <laughs> Canada. I mean, um, it's not that far. It I only know, takes I, me about an hour to drive to I, Michigan. <laughs> don't don't tell anybody, all right? Most of us don't know anything about Canada. I mean, I have to I'm, ride my polar bear yeah, over yeah, there. Yeah, that's and, better, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, just, you know, uh, the, the, the breadth that we go to to get um, guests from uh, all the four corners <laughs> of the globe or something like that. But yeah, uh, you're, you're, you're a princess to... Uh, to be with us. Irene Ayanku from uh, Toronto, Canada, Tooth Life Studio, uh, and, and a real entrepreneur's entrepreneur. And we will link to all of her websites, social media handles. And I, I encourage you to, to spend a little bit of time noodling around uh, what she puts out there into the marketplace, because I think she's a real genius at that. We can all learn a lot of things from her. So um, I really appreciate everybody being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.